Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between art and commerce by talking to artists, presenters, and performers about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Welcome to episode 14, where I interview Armenian guitarist Gohar Vardanyan. Gohar has appeared on NPR, was featured on the cover of Classical Guitar magazine, and was described by Guitar International magazine as the complete package. She's performed at the Smithsonian, Alice Tully Hall, and many guitar societies throughout the U.S., as well as in Sweden, Italy, Panama, Canada, and Mexico. Gohar is a passionate player, but she is perhaps best known for her nearly flawless technique. I was lucky enough to meet and study with Gohar a few years ago at a week-long guitar retreat. She's kind, patient, and funny. For reasons unknown, our practice room held one of those old-timey fashioned, those old-timey paper cutters we all remember from elementary school art class. At the time, she repeatedly threatened to use the paper cutter to cut off the thumb of anyone who missed a bass note in our ragtag quartet as we struggled to keep up with each other. Gohar's recital at the University of Rhode Island Guitar Festival on October 16th, 2021 was the first live classical guitar performance I had seen in almost two years. Seeing her perform was like a drink of water after a long trek through the COVID desert. I would have listened to just about anything, and I consider myself lucky to have heard not just anything, but a tremendous performance by Gohar. On to the interview. Welcome, Gohar Vardanyan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. So we're here at the University of Rhode Island Guitar Fest in 2021, first time many of us, many of you are playing live in uh, 16, 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, you played today. Um, how did it feel to get out in front of people? Uh, it was nice. This wasn't the first time for me, uh, which means it went a little bit better. Uh, but it was definitely the first time where it was full, kind of, uh, where people weren't forced to sit, you know, really far away and spread out throughout the whole <laughs> space. Um, so it, it felt nice to have the same energy and not have everyone sitting really far away. And to play inside, because I did play one concert that was outside, worrying that some kind of uh, dragonfly is going to sit on me <laughs> while I play. Well, you did have some visitors today, though, actually. Yeah. I did, but yeah. it was a cute puppy. So <laughs> if you weren't at the concert, you wouldn't know. But um, during the encore, I was sitting on the stage with an aisle that's right in front of me, and this dog just starts running towards me. I where it came from, I think we still don't know. No. But yeah. here I am in the middle of my encore, I'm playing, and this dog is rushing, and I can hear the collar yeah. kind of like hitting it. And I look down, I'm like, is it going to jump and scratch my guitar? <laughs> that was my first thought as I'm playing. And then it ran back and ran over again. It was, it was funny. It, yeah, you handled it um, incredibly professionally because I, I was scared for your guitar. I, I had and to for look you, and laugh. And so. It was, <laughs> And and the and it was a quite noisy dog. He it was a yeah. collar. Um, and <laughs> That's what it, I know. heard. That's why I looked. Otherwise, I wouldn't know something's yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah, but it was all like part of the act, as far as anyone watching was maybe, concerned. Maybe I planned it. Maybe yeah. it's my dog. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess post COVID, the lesson is you know we'd be ready for anything. Anything can happen. Yes, um, absolutely. I actually so I, I actually first heard of you. Was it seven years ago already that you were on Brett Williams's podcast? It must be. Yeah, I think that was March 2013. At any rate, um, you've come a long way since then. I'd love to hear a little bit about um, COVID. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. maybe we start there, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I understand that you recorded an album just before lockdown, or how how did yeah. that? Maybe... <laughs> My album came down came out about a month into lockdown. I was recording it. I recorded it in my own apartment, so lockdown wouldn't have affected the oh. recording process of it. But the fact that it was released during the time of absolutely no concerts wasn't the most convenient. Um, I was I, That was planned all ahead of time. I recorded some of the pieces, I believe, actually in December uh, of 2019. And then in January 2020 was the rest of the, the pieces. So the recording was done. The editing was being done in February and then March happened of 2020, and I wasn't going to stop. You know, everything was done, basically, so all I had to do was send it to disc makers, and luckily they were still functioning. Good. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Although, maybe a little bit slower, but yeah. it did, you know, 
took about a month, which is pretty standard. You know, I think they say it might be slower, but that's pretty much how long it takes after you send in your WAV files and then before you get your actual physical copies. Yeah. So it came out in May. And then you're stuck with inventory. And then I'm stuck with 1,000 CDs that okay. are under my bed. <laughs> uh, the, I did an Indiegogo campaign, which is kind of like a Kickstarter, uh -huh. in order to raise funds to print the CDs. And uh, 100 of those CDs were sent to the backers. Nice. So one box I was able to get out of my apartment. Okay. But the other six boxes <laughs> hopefully will you know, start to empty out. Okay, but f financially, because you did the Indiegogo, you weren't in the red uh, no. from the production okay well that, yeah. that's good I already yeah. had the recording equipment yep. um, that you just accumulate over time I had to upgrade my microphones but again the the Kickstarter or the Indiegogo really um, it helped with that uh, and then the cost of product produ producing the CDs mm -hmm. so no I wasn't in a red when I made the, the, the from the printing of the CDs yeah too. And the, what kind of decisions did you make about where to put it in terms of platforms? I have just the physical CDs. They are available for download from my website. And digital download? Digital download okay. uh, in MP3 files and as well as FLAC, in case because some people said that they prefer FLAC because mm -hmm. higher quality, um, and MP3 because you have to... You have to, I think, convert FLAC. I don't think any player just plays FLAC. So mm. MP3 is standard. Everyone can play it. Yep. And uh, yeah, so physical and downloadable. And also it's available on Apple iTunes as a download, not as streaming, but okay. as download. Is that something that I've heard that the iTunes, the downloadable format is going away? Is that just for certain artists or is that... Honestly, I haven't researched that much. Okay. You know why I... I don't make money from the CD, you know, so it's there, it's available. So I haven't really researched from like to see what's what's there. The streaming I didn't do. So if if Apple gets rid of their downloadable thing, it will not be available on Apple anymore. The streaming, I just felt like it's so wrong, like because the artist gets such little, little pennies, like yes. not even a whole penny for every time something is streamed. Yep. And it's not, like as I said before, CDs is not what's going to pay my bills. It's out of principle that you're basically, you've put in all that hard work into making a CD, mm -hmm. um, and then you're just giving it out for free. And not, like, I understand that the, the fans are listening to it, but Spotify or Apple are the ones making money off of it. Yeah. And I just, I'm out of protest, and it's probably going to hurt me because less people, are, fewer people are going to hear it, but I'm just not going to do it <laughs> because I don't care if, you yeah. know, you're making a stand, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Because for yeah. me, it's not going to make any financial difference if I get like zero, zero point. I don't know how many zeros there are it's, before that number. So, we, so we've had guests talk about this, and it depends on the artist. It depends on yeah, of course. Um, the genre. But it's for many nylon string classical guitarists. It's mm -hmm. point three zeros. Three seven. And the other thing is, per, I'm not Beyonce, right? Like, I'm not going to have millions and millions of streams yep. of a track that I recorded. Yeah. So it's really sense we're talking about. That's why I can just be like, you know what, Spotify, yeah. I don't want to stream on you. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So you've yeah. made that decision. Um, uh, so, so that's not a revenue stream. And now, mm -hmm. of course, COVID takes away revenue stream of concerts, which mm -hmm. I imagine prior to COVID was your primary source of... Not primary, okay. no. Um, I don't know how many... Oh, I guess I'm sure there are classical guitarists, purely classical guitarists, yeah. whose only revenue stream is concerts. Yeah, but there's a handful. Generally, it's the it's, David Russells and the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think actually David Russell is the only person I think of that doesn't teach in an institution. Mm. My former teacher, Manuel Barroeco, he teaches... My other former teacher, Sharon Isbin, she also teaches. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they play more often, of course, and it's a bigger revenue stream for them to play concerts. But generally speaking, if I think of my colleagues, most of it is from teaching. Mm -hmm. And concerts are great, but you have to play so many of them um, in order to make like a normal living yeah. off of concerts. Yeah. So I, I remember hearing, I don't know if it was from Brett's podcast or where, but I remember hearing mm -hmm. that you've, you fairly early on embraced the digital um, medium mm -hmm. in terms of promotion of your own work and teaching. And and I see you more often, it seems, on Twitter, on Instagram, mm -hmm. um, doing little clips, giving away tips. Yeah. Um, 
has that helped you in your teaching career? Has that? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, it all started with uh, making videos for Strings by Mail for their YouTube channel. And I was making, uh, first it was just um, repertoire videos of pieces that were kind of that intermediate level that they're beautiful pieces, but they're not really attractive to concert artists. So mm. you don't see these pieces played in concert or recorded on professional CDs, mm. but they're intermediate level. They're accessible to a lot of amateur uh, players or students that would want to play, but they have no idea what they sound like because no one else recorded them because as a concert artist and I do the same thing for my concert program I'm going to pick the juicy difficult pieces that kind of like show off what I can do right mm -hmm. I'm not going to maybe for an encore but I'm not going to make a whole program of intermediate level repertoire so we started with that um, record pieces that weren't recorded before we called it the unexplored repertoire series <laughs> and that was like my first introduction to making videos um, and the, the setup was that I would play the piece but we didn't want to just have a recording of the piece and not have anything like good to offer or something useful to offer to the, the person who's watching so um, we also had an instructional element to it so nice. I would play the piece and then I would say something about the piece that I liked or something that would help them the student learn um, to play it better so it kind of that's where it kind of started the mm -hmm. the whole um the whole teaching online instructional yeah. videos. Then we did lessonettes where, because I was getting a lot of questions technique related um, as comments or messages and stuff, basic things like how to do scales, how to do arpeggios, how to do vibrato. So we figured, all right, let's do a series where I was just gonna explain outside of a piece, just explain how to do these things. So it started there and then eventually it moved to my own channel where I do similar things, um, not, technique specific but piece specific um and yeah and put them on my channel i did that with etudes because many people who learn to play the guitar they they play etudes you know mm -hmm. los carcassi etudes giuliani aguado and all of that and again i would play the etude as an example of how it can be played um as one of many varieties that you know you could play it differently obviously and then some instructional component that goes with it and that has helped i believe for almost all of my students because I mean, in terms of them finding me, it, it has helped me yep. get students. Yep. Um, because whenever you need to know something nowadays, you just Google or you YouTube something, right? So a person would search Carcassia to number three, and there I go. I pop up one of many lessons, probably, this other people doing the same thing. Yep. And they watch all of us, and they might be like, hey, I like her teaching style, right? Or somebody else's teaching style. And... In the description of my, my videos, I say, you know, for private lessons, see my website. Um, I never really say that in a video, but it's in the description. So whoever's yep. curious enough and wants to find something out, they will. So they, li they, they like the style. They contact me for private lessons. So it becomes a stream of students that they find out about you. They can have a sample, basically, of how I teach and how I play um, before they contact me. Yeah. Did So was the... the um were people able to contact you even when you were doing the strings by, na by mail bits? Or was that just sort of getting your name out there? And then, I, I yeah. don't, yeah, I think they could because my website was in the description. Uh, so, even then, even the strings by yeah, mail would, yeah, yeah, would yeah. promote your, your personal website. Okay. Yeah, for more information about me. And then okay. when you go to my website, there's a page that would say lessons. Okay. And a curious enough person would click on it. Right. And I, I imagine they're, well, obviously they're paying for the production and I imagine they're paying you a fee as a No, with no. strings by mail, that wasn't really our um, kind of arrangement. With okay. strings, I'm a uh, sponsored artist. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I am a strings by mail sponsored artist. So yeah. that means I have certain credit with their website. So throughout the year, I can order whatever I want from their website. Okay. It could be strings. I don't do strings because I'm also sponsored by a string company, so I get my strings for free. Okay. The Royal Classic Strings, the RC recitals. So those I get for free. I have plenty of strings. So from strings by mail, I might order sheet music. I might order humidifiers, nail files. <laughs> I love the nail files. Yeah. Um, my guitar case, for example. It was a few years' worth of credit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, we just decided that for I won't order anything else, and I will use up, you know, credit into the future until yeah. I paid off my guitar case. Okay, yeah. And uh, then I get the guitar case that way. Right. Plus, you're getting more students because they're promoting your website, and through the website, you're getting the yeah. questions, and occasionally, well, 
some percentage of the people who are asking you questions are turning into... Most of the uh, time, if a student contacts me, there is usually some reference to, hi, I've been watching your videos, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, So usually, the pr whoever writes to uh, inquire about lesson prices or availability or whatever, they have contacted me because they watched my videos and they liked something about them. Do you get a fair amount of noise from... Well, I'll call it noise. Maybe that's the wrong word, but a fair amount of um, discourse with people who don't want to pay you but just want to continue to ask you questions and how do you handle Sometimes, that? Sometimes, yeah. it depends. Um, if it's like, you know, it all depends on how they approach it. If they took the time to write me the email with a proper like, hi, my name is this, blah, 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 I'll take the time to reply to them and they don't need to pay me for this. It's a question, sure. legitimate. Yeah, yeah. If someone just like, obviously did not care <laughs> enough to just at least introduce themselves, mm. I'll probably ignore the email. Okay. Which is maybe rude on my end, but it was rude on their end to begin with sure, to like sure. not say hi, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. just to like throw it there because I get so many emails yep. and I do read them and it takes a long time to answer emails. It's yeah. surprising, but just to type an answer out. Sure. So but if I see someone wrote a paragraph and it's a legitimate question, I will answer that question. Do you use templates, I wonder? Like, I mean, you've got, like, you must get the same types of questions. Like, If it's tremolo. regarding playing, probably. No, well, yeah. those kind of questions about tremolo, they're very hard to, or tremolo or technique in general, they're hard to answer in emails because yeah. usually what ends up happening, I don't have a template for that, but I would say general things, but I'm like, I can't tell you until I see how you play because it's true. He might, you know, he or she might have a, I get like, I don't know how to use my thumb or I can't do rest stroke with my right hand thumb. Okay. Great. But you might be holding your hand inside out and that's why you can't do, <laughs> you know, rest yeah. stroke. I can't answer that until I see them. And that's what I tell them. I'm like, look, these yeah. are generally what you need. There's a video that I show you how to do it. You can watch it, but I can't answer or fix your problem until I see how you're playing. So, so now I'm curious when you get the, we'll, we'll call it a conversion, sort of a marketing term and convert mm -hmm. the, the email uh, question into an actual student. Um, you get that conversion pre-COVID. I would imagine much of the time that means that you get to see the person in person. Mm -hmm. um, you're in a, you happen to live in New York, so you're in a city with many people, aspiring mm -hmm. guitarists. Um, was that the case before COVID? Or, or because it's the internet and it's worldwide, you're getting questions from all over the world anyway? The questions never turn to students, though. I, I see, like, when okay. you ask now, I realize yeah, what you're yeah. asking. A question always remains the question, and they get their answer, and I probably never hear from them again. Ah, okay. The so person who wants to take yeah. lessons, in, from the very first email, they write to inquire about lessons. Okay. So, the you know... I can't remember any time someone asked me a question and then asked about lessons. Wow, okay. That hasn't really happened. But I also don't get that many questions like in emails in terms of how to play, like sometimes, but they're not the majority of... Uh, sometimes I'll get comments and stuff underneath sure. um, and I'll try to answer those as well if they're like legitimate questions. Um, but I can't think of a moment where like they've turned into students. They might turn into a single lesson just to have that question answered. Mm -hmm. That's happened maybe once or twice. But the regular students, they usually, they want the lessons. They contact you to ask you about lessons. Okay, slightly geeky question, but like mm -hmm. what percentage of the email correspondence is someone asking f to become a student and what percentage and is just random question about guitar? No idea, honestly, <laughs> no idea. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think it, no, I can't even like guess because I don't get questions in emails. That's the thing because there's so many different avenues. Yeah. Instagram comments. I don't answer direct messages on Instagram. There's just too many. Like I can't go mm -hmm. through all of them, but comments where it would also benefit somebody else because comments are public. So if yeah. I answer, somebody else can read it and it would benefit more people than a private message to someone. So I don't even, they get filtered. I don't even see the private messages on Instagram. Same thing with Facebook, private messages. I don't see them because they get oh, they get sent into the requests area for whatever reason. Okay. And when I look can, at the... Can you just people, turn them off just so people know I, that they should... I could turn them off, but time to time a friend writes, like if I'm friends okay. with them on Facebook, right? Someone I know, like if Adam wrote to me, sure. I'm not going to like ignore it. Yeah. So I'll scan through them. And if I see like it's okay. someone I know, I will answer. But if it's someone I don't know... I can't read all of them. Yeah. It would be my entire life would be spent answering questions. Okay. Um, 
And then I also figured someone who is serious enough would take the time to email me. It yeah. does take more effort from their end. So it's almost strategic on my end. For, for me, it's, it's just time. I don't have it. Uh, yeah. But thinking about it more, it's become a filter forcing people to go through the email yeah. because they need to take that extra step to contact me, yeah. which means they actually cared more enough or really wanted something. Yeah. And then I will take the time to answer. But it's so easy to just like send an email on, on a DM or what they call direct messages right. or send a message where it takes seconds from them. But it e takes, email takes hours. It yeah. takes, well, for me, if I get 100, 100 questions, from 100 seconds from each person, right? Like each one sends me a quick question. It took nothing from them because they're one person, but I have to answer 100 of them. So that takes a long time for me. With the email, the other person's effort is more. So there's, so fewer, there's people, fewer people. Okay. Fewer people. And then also the ones that took the time are actually more interested. So when I answer them, yep. it wasn't just like this fleeting thing they okay. just thought of. Like, yeah. ooh, let me ask her. And never thought about it again. Okay, so we don't know what percentage of emails no turn into <laughs> students, but we do know that there's a higher propensity for someone who emails to become a student than someone who yeah. comments yeah. on a YouTube or, or comments on an Instagram Absolutely. post or DMs. Because those the DMs definitely are not becoming students because you're not even answering no, them. No, because so they don't even... Yeah. You can tell from the effort put in. It's yeah. just a couple of words. and Okay. Yeah. It might sound mean from my end, but it's really... I don't think it sounds it's mean. Yeah. endless. Like... Yeah. Hours can be spent answering people, and I don't have those hours. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're putting yourself out there in the first place is mm -hmm. generous from, from my perspective. So. Yeah, um, and there is well, that. Like, I don't get paid for that part, right? Yep. I get paid from someone who decides to take lessons and then continues taking lessons. Right. So my time is actually spent teaching that person. Yeah. So back to the pandemic versus pre-pandemic. So mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, you're getting um, the majority of students from people who are emailing, um, they're emailing presumably from all over the world. Yeah, um, they are. And so before March 2020, how many of your students were uh, um, you know, live in the flesh and how many were over the internet? They were about 50-50 okay. um, pre-pandemic. Yeah, I would say half of my students I was teaching in person in Manhattan and the other half were Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, whatever, whoever wanted to use whichever platform. Post, uh, during the pandemic, all of the in-person students, either they had to just stop lessons because they had difficulties in their own time, family, mm. because, you know, the world changed basically overnight, um, or they, they switched to online. So they were in person, and then we continued basically our, our lessons just on a two-dimensional screen. Yeah. And that was the case. I actually gained students during the pandemic, I think, because um, people stopped having a commute. So they all of a sudden found themselves with extra time on their hands. So these are, again, people who actually liked the guitar, played the guitar already, but mm -hmm. maybe didn't have time for lessons. Or maybe they didn't have enough time to practice because they were commuting two hours a day. Yeah. So I gained a few students that had these extra time that they didn't used to have. But, of course, all online. And this is, I mean, the pandemic, March 2020, you're eight years plus into your teaching career. I'd say so. 2020, yeah, 10 years probably already, because I, I finished school in 2010. So so, so by that time, you've got, um, I, well, I would imagine anyway, well, I know people, teachers aspire to teach fewer students, younger students usually. Ah, yeah. So I'm guessing that by the, you know, 2019, most of your students are adults or... In you, general, well, in the beginning, I would teach whoever wanted to because when you just graduate from school yep. you don't have that much say mm -hmm. <laughs> really you need the students and I was lucky enough to have really nice students just pure luck you know because sometimes you get students who just don't practice at all um, I used to teach some younger kids um, let's say eight years old seven years old but over time what I found is that I don't enjoy teaching kids whose parents are making them do it you mm. know, so I have a couple of young ch children now. But I shouldn't call them children because at this point they're 13 is the youngest. But she started when she was nine. Uh, but she loved it. And she's the last one that I took as a nine-year-old. I even told her parents that, look, I don't teach nine-year-olds. But because it was... Um, they they knew someone that I knew it was recommended. I was mm -hmm. like, all right, let's do it. If she can do it and if she likes it and if she cares for it, let's do it. And she does. And I've been teaching her for like four years. The other students that I have are teenagers, so older. Mm -hmm. Young children, I feel like it's also my way of teaching. I feel very responsible for 
like the technique development, the proper usage of the instrument, and I'm not there to babysit or entertain, you know. So I need someone who is serious, and you can't have a six-year-old who is like that serious because they're six. Of yeah. course, they have other interests, and the guitar is just like this extra thing. And ideally, you do want to start when you're five and six. And I started before I was five, but I had so my... That was my next question, yeah. Yeah, but that was my dad. He put up with all of my, like, I don't want to do this. You know, he put up with it, and I'm really thankful to him that he did. But I don't want to be that person <laughs> to somebody else's child. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not in my personality sure. to be able to inspire. I think that's actually the thing. I, I see some teachers that are really great at inspiring kids to play. I can't do that. I'm like, you don't want to practice? Quit. Go. <laughs> yeah. You know? But um, I found that older students, adults uh, who do it as a hobby or just teenagers who want to do it professionally later, the self-motivated kind, great. I can do great with them because yeah. I can teach them everything they need to know, you know, to a certain point. Yeah. Um, with little kids, I'm not good at inspiring them. So. Okay. So, so I feel like there's a lot of meat there. So <laughs> first of all, I mean... So your dad had the patience, so you're yes. obviously very grateful to him. And, <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I know as a parent myself, I'm always wondering, you know, I know that most of my, my younger son is 11. Mm -hmm. He does not really like to play the piano. <laughs> um, so it's, there's a, basically, a, it's come, at this point, it comes down to bribing him to do it. Yeah, um, that's how but, it was for me. <laughs> yeah, okay. My older son looks at what I'm doing with my 11, my 11 year old and he's saying, I wish you had done that with me, mm -hmm. even though he knows like at that point he would have fought me tooth and nail. So, and I, as a, you know, I wasn't, I didn't pick it up until I was 14. Um, mm -hmm. and I kind of wish that my folks had forced me to do it when I was seven, but I'm sure when the seven year old me, many, have, many you know, adults, people who start to understand, they wish the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm, first of all, you know, Kudos to your dad, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, <laughs> absolutely. And, and I'm guessing, like, you know, if, if or when you have children of your own, you'll want to serve that function? or Not, necessarily. not necessarily. Okay. No, you know why? Because this is a difficult profession. Yeah. It's, you have to love what you do. And luckily, I do love what I do. But this isn't somewhere you go to, like, this isn't like, you know, your parents want you to become doctors and lawyers because... They want you to be, you know, safe in the world where you will know mm. that you will have an income of some sort to be able to. This isn't that kind of profession. It's very up and down, insecure. Um, I don't know if I would want to force that on my kid. Okay. Unless they were just somehow super interested. And of course, every kid is not going to be interested. But let's say I saw the interest, then sure, I would teach. But would I do what my dad did? Probably not. Mm. You know, lucky I still, I like it. But it's a, it's a, I wouldn't want that forced, you know. Yeah. There's other wonderful things that people can learn to do and become professionals that. Yeah. I wonder if there's a chance that the fact that he forced you had an influence on whether, you know, how much you love it. I mean, it's, you know. For me, it was different. Um, we, I'm from Armenia. It was the, the time where, when I was little, about five years old, is when the Soviet Union collapsed. So there weren't really too many choices in terms of if my parents wanted me to have a good future and stuff, you know, you, you wouldn't be staying in Armenia if you wanted to have a good future because the country is falling apart. So to some degree, it was more of a desperate situation for, for me to be good at what I do, to have a chance outside of Armenia and to get me outside of Armenia. So it's a different circumstances where if you live in a country where everything is very stable, you don't need to do that. Yeah. But... When but they could are, have forced you to play chess or learn yeah, science. Yeah, but information or, was at home. My dad was a guitar teacher. That's what he ah, was good okay. at. So, yeah, my mom is a translator, so I could also learn multiple languages, right, and that do that. Um, I ended up learning it anyway. But um, guitar was something that he knew he was good at, and he was good at teaching, and that would be a chance that he you. could give that yeah. information to me and pass it on. If he was a scientist, maybe I would become a scientist. Who knows? Yeah. But Okay, okay. That's what it was <laughs> at yeah. hand. So for us, it was a more of a, almost a necessary thing for him to make it happen, whether yeah. I wanted it or not when I was a child, how much I protested <laughs> or not. Okay. Uh, but if you're living in a stable place, let the kid decide what they want to do. Yeah, okay. 
that's what sounds like wise words. <laughs> um, but coming back to young Gohar, so yeah. young Gohar doesn't doesn't yet have the wisdom that she has now, and, no. and is, is fighting tooth and nail to not practice. She's her, she's her friends playing outside. How does mm-hmm. your dad get you to practice as a five well, or less? You started when you were five. Yeah. I was. I started before I could remember. It, I literally started probably as soon as I could sit upright. I had some kind of plastic guitar-shaped thing in my hand. Um, but five is what I tell people because it's a nice round number. Um, it was <laughs> before back then. It wasn't money because I asked. Like one parent actually emailed me and asked me uh, how much I was paid to practice because he was thinking of doing the same thing too for his daughter. I'm like, mm, this wasn't money. Like, I, maybe I grew up in a different time, but kids weren't paid money when I was little. I, I don't know if it was, I, I grew up in the early 90s, right? Like, that's not how yeah. it was. Um, it was ice cream, it was candy, <laughs> it was new toys. It was getting to skip school. If there oh, was wow. like a performance, um, if I had to play in a performance, I would not go to school that day. That's a big one, yeah. Yeah, and it... Uh, it See, the thing is, I, I didn't want to practice because who, what kid does? My kids, are, uh, my, my friends are playing hide and seek outside, running around, screaming around, and I'm like playing scales. Like, that's not fun. But I was good at it for my age. So being good at something does attract you to it, mm-hmm. you know, because you're like, ooh. You know? <laughs> so that's what kind of kept me going because I had the advantage of starting with my dad. I basically had daily lessons with him. I never practiced on my own. He was always present. So I had the advantage of learning faster than the other kids my age because I had lessons daily instead of weekly. Mm-hmm. And I was never doing anything wrong because I was constantly supervised where... Yeah. A kid who normally takes lessons has a teach sees their teacher once or twice a week. Twice would be better, but the rest of the time they're free to practice wrong, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, whether they want to or not, they just don't know any different. Do you have students today who are or th- these days who are practicing twice a week? Or, I'm sorry. Uh, twice a week. T- taking lessons twice a week. No, this is um, actually back in Armenia. Young children would always take lessons twice a week. Like if I went to a music school, mm. um, I took my dad forced me to take violin lessons. That didn't last very long, but I took violin for two years and I had lessons on Tuesdays and Fridays. They were 45 minutes long. They weren't one hour, but they were twice a week. Okay. It's just uh, to have more supervision in between. Sure. To yeah. not have well, six makes, days go by. Yeah. Yeah, no, here it's not really the custom. Um, that could get very expensive as well if you're mm-hmm. having two lessons a week. But also I teach older students, so they don't really need that. They actually need yeah. the extra time in between to practice what yeah. they were taught. So I want to come back to the older students, but mm-hmm. I also want to hear about like when, when you were still teaching because you had to teach mm-hmm. younger students. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, bribe uh, of choice? Or, or I, I don't know what their parents know. did. Oh, okay. I didn't bribe them. It's not my oh, job of to bribe you them. Bribe. No, I, I understand that. But the ones no. who were practicing, you don't know what. Who, I have how, no idea the what their parents. Were making them do yeah, it. Okay. that's their own business. Okay. What they bought them or didn't buy them. Okay. But that was, uh, I have to say they rarely practiced too. So. <laughs> so most of them probably weren't getting bribed. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so then you're you're using the strings by mail, and then eventually your own YouTube channel. You've got your website, mm-hmm. and that's attracting more students, and you're able to essentially, I guess, be selective, because I, I imagine you're still getting approached by parents yes. who want their children to be taught. Not not so much. I think because of the pandemic. Well, see, teaching kids online is almost impossible. And mm. I actually was approached a couple of times, um, kids who lost their teacher because because of the pandemic they moved away or they're not teaching in person or you for whatever reason but i don't think you can teach a beginner kid to play not not if you want to do it properly you can you can do a lot of things but i find that wrong because with a with a child or anyone even teenagers even a complete adult beginner in order to teach them to play properly, you need to be present to actually touch that person's hand and put them in the right position. And with the younger the person, the more physical it becomes because you can't explain things to them. You have to show them. And sometimes the visual over the camera doesn't really translate properly on the other side of the screen. So I explain that to parents. Like, look, if you want proper instruction, it would be wrong to start online. Even though I know a lot about technique and... I know what to teach you. I can't transfer that information. And it would be, I would feel wrong and bad, basically, if I was teaching bad fundamentals yeah. because it becomes a habit that you can't really fix as easily. So to 2019 and then let's say 2000, let's, let's 
let's be uh, optimistic and say we're coming out of the pandemic mm-hmm. now and we're going to, things will be normal yeah. uh, within six months. Um, if someone, if you had a student in New York, would you insist that they be in person um, at this, be- for the reasons that you just stated, even if they were intermediate or even advanced? No, it depends. If they're adults, um, first of all, they can make their own decision. <laughs> you know, okay. if they're, yeah. um, if they're complete beginners, I would probably suggest that we're, they were in person, but if they're in New York, at least for the first month or two, mm-hmm. so that I can show them, they can see, like to get the right dimensions, you know, the right positions. Yeah. Um, and then after that, they can switch if it's not, you know, working out. But most of my students who are in New York, they are in person. They don't want online lessons because why yeah. would they if they can just meet okay. me in person? Yeah. I think the student also realizes that in person is better. The ones that I teach online, it's because they live in a remote area or uh, where there are no guitar teachers for in person or they specifically want lessons from me and I'm not in their area. So um, then, you know, that's yeah. that's what happens. You, you do the remote. And the ones who are in person, are you in a position where you can say, like, okay, you come to my place, or are you still traveling? I don't teach or? out of my apartment. Okay. Um, it's just because I want the separation. <laughs> I rent yep. a studio in uh, on hourly basis in oh, Manhattan, and okay. we meet for that hour in that space. It's centrally located. Um, it's easy for everyone. I go to that. It's my workspace, kind of. Um, mm-hmm. It's more professional that way, too. You have one commute, and you just have, yeah. like, several students in a yeah. row. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, and I don't live in a central location, like central meaning, meaning I live in New York City, but I don't live in Manhattan. Right. So it's inconvenient for people to go to Queens, for example, to take lessons because it's not central, especially if they live in Brooklyn, for example. Yeah. It would be hard. So how many students are we talking about um, at the studio, like like pre-pandemic and maybe future? Like how how many are coming to this studio? To the studio, I think... Right now, it's maybe seven or eight. Okay. Yeah, I think that's how many hours I'm in the studio. So, and eight. you space that out over like one or two days? Two days, yeah. Two days, so four hours a day or whatever, mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you and can't then. really do more than four. The thing is, oh, I could I could if I created a half-hour break somewhere, but you need time because if I, let's say, teach from two to six, that's a long time of just like sitting. And mm-hmm. I can't just like take breaks in between students because the, the studio is rented from two to three, three to four, yeah. four to forty-five, right? So, um, I wouldn't. I try to only teach in four-hour blocks, never five. Five, like if I'm desperate, I would, but four is the maximum. Then you need a snack, you need a break, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Refresher. Yeah. I've actually heard that even in any other discipline, like four hours is like the optimal mm-hmm. or most amount of time that anyone can focus on any given task. Yeah. It's a, uh, um, you, I kind of, from experience, I realized like after four hours, I want to stand up, <laughs> yeah. you know, so. Yeah. Even if you're practicing. Actually, oh, yeah. actually speaking of which, so how, so you, so you have two days a week where you have four hours with students, you, a couple, three days a week where you're doing just online lessons, I assume, or. Yeah. The, I, I teach five out of the seven days. I have two days off. Okay. Um, sometimes I will allow a student to creep into my day off if I had to reschedule something. Yeah. Uh, it all depends on like if if it's possible or not. If I am not doing anything on that free day, yeah. But I try to keep my free days free. Yeah. Okay. So, and then where do you fit in time to practice? Because you're playing pretty technically difficult uh, material as yeah. I heard today. Um, I wish I had more time. Yeah. There are some days that I don't practice. It's just wow. if I teach secrets. This is recording you know oh i know okay. oh i know it's not a, it, i mean it's a secret <laughs> it's not it's just impossible if you teach six hours one day um let's say two skype students in the morning and four people in the afternoon right or or even just all skype i i don't want to hear guitar ever again that day <laughs> i especially don't want to hear myself playing the same thing over and over again it's um it's tiring like to teach because if you if you care it's tiring because yeah. you you want to you know, I'm not going to zone out once the student is playing. You're going to pay attention, right? Um, so there are some days that it, if it's a particularly heavy day, I won't practice at all. Let's say if I taught seven students, I probably won't play. If it's six, I might practice an hour or two. You know, it just depends. Um, if it's an three... An hour or two is a late day, in other words. It's, but then there sorry. might be days that none, none happens. On okay. my day off, I might practice three or four 
you know, a day, a day off. off. Three or four hours yeah, that's why it's a day off, right? So I can practice. <laughs> what do you think I do on my day off? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, if I only had a couple of students, then if I don't practice, that's all totally my fault. It's just me being lazy. <laughs> so, so five days a week of students, and then on the days off, three, three to four hours of practice. And mostly it's three. Sometimes it's four. If I'm being hundred percent honest over here, so that's good. Yeah, it's never four. No, never oh. more than sorry. Never more than four. Four is my maximum. Four is your max. Yeah. Yeah. Which again sort of fits in with what I've read about you know productivity. You really can't even if you take hours. a break, I just feel like I, your your yeah. brain is like dead. Yeah. So and and did that increase or decrease? Did teaching and practicing increase or decrease after after the lockdown? The teaching increased because right. I gained more students who all of a sudden had time yeah. to practice. The practicing decreased because all the concerts went away. So I'm like, woohoo! I don't have to practice anymore for only a period of time, and then you start missing it. Yeah. Um, and also like the timing. The last concert I played was in February, and then I was um, editing the CD and all of that, and then the, the whole lockdown started in the middle of March for us, right? So uh, May, April, May, I was occupied with the CD. So I practiced very little in those two months, and it's the beginning of this crazy time, so I probably spent too much time watching the news, too, where I could have practiced because I, mm. I had the time, but instead you're watching... Um, you know, scary things on, on yeah, TV. Yeah. Um, but then once like summer came along, the whole started getting better to at least in New York City, the summer of 2020, yep. we saw that, uh, you know, the, our crazy time go down yep. so we could breathe a little bit. Um, then I started practicing a bit more too, but I used it to learn new repertoire because concerts, I knew concerts weren't going to happen for a long time. 2020, there was no way the concert would come back. Like it was already like, you could tell that we're not going to recover by fall. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I probably have a whole year where there'll be absolutely no concerts. Um, and that ended up being true. I think they started again in in the spring of 2021 mm -hmm. where invitations started to come in or actual events started to happen. So I just used it to learn new rep. And for me, it was the Bach uh, Suite 997. The, nice. So that's once this concert is like now that it's done, I'm going to go home and on my free days, I'm going to practice <laughs> <laughs> the, the Bach and record it. And record it. And okay. record it for YouTube. For YouTube. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Normally, what I what I do is uh, ask, what would the um, interviewee like to go out with in terms of uh, music? So, I imagine maybe something from your CD, or maybe sure. Or we, yeah, yeah, that would be great. What would What would be your track of choice off of the CD? I'll let you choose. It doesn't. I mean, I recorded it. I hopefully made them equally good <laughs> you okay. know like listenable okay. so you can pick whichever one you want all right cool yeah. well then i will have to uh i'll have to edit that in and after i listen and make sounds my choice good. It sounds good sounds <laughs> good the song okay well gohar it's been a pleasure thank you for taking thank the you time. so much for having me um and thank you for the concert this afternoon it was wonderful thank you university of rhode island guitar fest and yep. uh we're out okay so bear witness gohar left the choice to me her CD, Grand Solos, is more than just listenable. It's now in heavy rotation in my dining room, and my 11-year-old son seems to have taken a shine to it. The whole CD is simply great. Because I'm a sucker for Bach, my first choice was the opening track, the prelude to Bach's Lute Suite No. 3. But over the past few listens, Fernando Soar's Grand Solo, Opus 14, has snuck up on me, and as of today, it has crept past the post to become my new favorite track. So here it is, Gohar Fardanian performing Fernando Soar's Grand Solo, Opus 14. Enjoy. <laughs> 